Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, everybody. Prophet is Dawn here, and I want to welcome you to Moa's Art, where God dwells, Jesus reigns, the Holy Spirit guides, and we live in the agape. Amen. I just want to welcome you all today for another installment of Moments with Moa. Moments with Moa. I'm so excited. I'm excited about what God is doing and the message that he has for us today. And I just want to encourage you all to grab your books, your notebooks, your pens, your pads, so that we can take notes as we get through uh, this word. I'm, I'm just in awe. I am in awe of God. But we want to talk tonight about um, the book of Hebrews. I'm going to start with chapter 10. And I'm just encouraged. I receive what God did for those people uh, in that time as a prophetic word for us as we end out 2019 going into 2020. I believe that God is trying to demonstrate his glory even through our lives, even tonight, even tonight. So I just want to encourage you to just follow along and uh, get your word out. And we're going to go through this. Uh, But again, the book of Hebrews, we're going to talk about it. And I know you all uh, who are Bible studiers, you know that this book was written to um, the Hebrews. And um, oftentimes when when we hear uh, a word from this book, we're told that it was written either by Paul or by Luke. Um, those are the most common uh, authors that we believe that the word was written by. But I've even heard that uh, Barnabas may have written it, Apollos, Silas, um, Philip, and some even say Priscilla. Priscilla wrote this book. So I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but one thing I know about the God that we serve, it don't mind, it does not matter. <laughs> As I was thinking in my head, he doesn't mind, but it doesn't matter who wrote the book, what tool he used uh, to get his word out. It's just simply he wanted to get the word out. And I believe that whoever wrote the book did such a great and phenomenal job uh, of, of helping us. Uh, to obtain the word. Amen. So uh, the book of Hebrews, just to give you a little background, uh, maybe a reminder for some and and, and just giving you some context behind uh, what's going on here for others. Um, the book of Hebrews was written during a time that um, these uh, people were actually um, from the early church and and they were recognized as maybe the second uh, um, iteration or, or set of Christians. They were the second iteration or set of, of Christians. And during this time, uh, Judaism was uh, very prominent in their area. So it was almost like many of them came from Uh, that religion, but um, they also, during that time, they were uh, confronted with 
the religious beliefs of that religion, you know, because it was it was so prominent that the practices of that time, the, the society, the way that they lived um, day to day was more congruent with Judaism uh, than Christianity, okay? So you understand that was a challenge for them at that time. So the author was trying to be of an encouragement to them. And um, if you think about it, Jesus had not yet returned. He had not yet returned. So they were of the the group that had either heard about uh, his death or, you know, were there to witness it, you know, so they had their challenges with believing in Christianity. And I, I'm so grateful, you know, sometimes when I think about it, is many things that makes me, that will, um, that makes me um, praise God for the exact time that he allowed me to walk in the earth. <laughs> you know, certain things, certain key events in life and and historical events and and one of them while I would have been content you know with with living during their their era but I would just be challenged because these people like I said they didn't have the book of Hebrews to refer to you know they didn't have the old testament to to document uh the the life of Jesus you know and look at it objectively and and from an outside looking in, you know. So I could just imagine how I would have responded living in that era, you know, and and prayerfully I would have made it on through, but who knows, who knows. But anyway, during this time, it was a challenge. It was a challenge for them, you know, because they had actually um, not seen his return. and, and, And these were... Uh, considered to be conscientious people, you know, uh, you know, very intellectual reminds me of, you know, like people that say they woke, you know, like, like, you know, the, the, the Hebrews, the, um, Hebrew Israelites, you know, that, that, that honest to God was, I mean, that was the signature of these people, you know, they were conscientious about their, uh, their lifestyle, about their relationships, about their currency, about their marketplace. I mean, these were some very intelligent people. And like I said, very intellectual, philosophical, you know, these types of things. So imagine the challenges that they were faced with without actually having a retrospective look or a forward look into, you know, history. So um, I love this book because it gives us very practical, hands-on application, you know, to certain things. So um, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. And when God said, we're going to talk about um, Hebrews chapter 10, I was just excited about it because this is one of the books that gives me a lot. This is a chapter that gives me a lot of reassurance of the God that we serve. It it just it gives me confidence in our faith and and even knowing and understanding that our faith is superior to any other, you know, where the word of God is very direct 
in this area where we we acknowledge and we recognize that there are other religions, there are other religious beliefs, but there is none other, none other that you can come through but Jesus, okay? And so Christianity, as it was being formed, they were very definitive about the fact that this is the way. <laughs> this is the way. So when I read Hebrews, it's almost like a... a um, uh, a badge of honor, per se. You know, it, it gives me confidence when I read, you know, these scriptures because it's very uh, reassuring. So anyway, I'm going to get into the word. And like I said, I'm going to go and I'm going to flow as the Holy Spirit uses me. And I'm not going to stop till I'll finish. <laughs> so I pray that y'all hang with a sister and we get through this. But if this is an encouragement to you, I just want you to, you know, give me um Give me your feedback. Give me your feedback. And maybe one day we can just come on here and study together. I'm open to the Spirit of God. So I love you all and I pray that this is a blessing to you. Thank God. Amen. Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity and we ask that you will send forth your Holy Spirit to rain down on us. Lord God, give us a rhema word concerning your word of God in Hebrews uh, chapter 10. We thank you for your word. We celebrate you for your word. And Father, we surrender and we relinquish our will that your will is shall be done in the name of Jesus. All right, so let's talk through this. So as I mentioned earlier, we don't know exactly who the author of uh, this book was, right? It, it could be a number of people. So we don't know if it was a he or she. Uh, so if I slip up and say he, meaning she, then forgive me in advance. But we do know who this was written to. It was written to the early church, okay? So it was written to those who were uh, the early Christians who were being heavily persecuted because they had just now come out of Judaism. And so the author <clears throat> at the time was writing to encourage them because keep in mind that during that time they were walking out the scriptures that we live by today. So they didn't have the scriptures to hold on to, to bring forth confidence and assurance and, and um, in the word. So they were actually walking this out. So the author was trying to encourage them and so while they were in the midst of persecution, he was encouraging them in their standing and stance with God, right? So he was helping them to understand that they were totally forgiven, that they were totally forgiven, no strings attached, right? That through Christ's obedience to God's will, at the cross, the new covenant believers received what those under the law could not receive, and that was total forgiveness. All right. So he wanted them to understand that God was not punishing them uh, in this life or in eternity for the terrible things that they had done and the things that were done before them that he 
<clears throat> wanted them to know or the author wanted them to know that through the sacrifice of God, through, through Christ, that they were totally forgiven, that this guilty consciousness that they may have had from the old system was no longer relevant. The author was trying to prevent them from going back to their comfort zone in Judaism with its sacrificial system because the author knew and understood that that would forfeit all of the benefits that Christ secured for them with his death on the cross. He fulfilled all that the old system pointed towards. He completed through his sacrifice, through his existence in the earth, he completed and fulfilled the law. So it was no longer necessary for them to live according to that law in the sense that it would bring forth forgiveness. Now, the law is, is, is still pertinent even in our daily lives because we can use the law as a reflection as a mirror per se to help us to identify those things or those areas in our life that we need to uh, eliminate the areas of sin but in and of itself the the law will not save us the law cannot fulfill us the law will not bring forth total forgiveness only Christ could do that. And he is the only one that can provide total forgiveness for those who draw near to God through him. See, the old system, by its very design, it barred the worshiper or those Christians from drawing uh, or Jews from drawing near to God's presence because in that time only the high priest was able to go into the holies of holies and that was only once a year but through Christ and his sacrifice every believer has access to God's presence and it's all because of Christ one and for all sacrifice of himself that provides us with a perfect standing with God. And what the author was trying to get them to understand in these chapter in this chapter but in these scriptures was the negative side of what the law and its sacrifices could not do. And then also the author pointed out all of the positive sides of what Christ's sacrifice did accomplish for us. What the author was trying to help them understand is that we received a complete and a final pardon of all of our sins from the past, from the present, and, and in the future. And I believe that even through this study, God is helping us to understand that we are completely and totally forgiven. If we repented of our sins, we are forgiven. These things are no longer attached to us. God has forgiven us. 
He's forgiven us. Think about it like this. As Christians, we know and we understand that in our daily walk, we have to confess our sins. We have to confess our sins in order to be cleansed and forgiven by Christ, by God. But understanding that when we were born again, we were welcomed into God's family of forgiveness. He forgave us. And as a mother, I can most relate to that because with my children, my children were naturally born to me. They were naturally born to me. So there's nothing they can do about it. It doesn't matter what we go through, the ups and the downs. It doesn't matter. But if they sin against me, they simply need to confess that they have sinned and ask for forgiveness so that our relationship cannot be hindered. But as my children, I've given them that family forgiveness. That I wouldn't necessarily give (coughs) to somebody who's outside of my children. The same thing with God. When we're in his family, he gives us that forgiveness. All we have to do, now see with my kids, it's not necessarily repenting. Because sometimes they'll say they're sorry and I know they ain't going to turn from what they're doing. They're just sorry. But through God is different. You know, we have to confess our sins and we have to turn from our sins. Like with Peter, when he fell, he fell badly, but he repented. And his failures did not remove him from God's family. He was still in in good standing when he repented and turned. He was given total forgiveness, no strings attached, no guilt attached, no condemnation, total forgiveness. And that's what God has given us as his children by confessing our sins and asking for forgiveness. Go back to the text and take a look at these chapters. And I'm I'm just going to go through 1 through 18. And if you take a look at them, they're broken out into four different sections, okay? So if you look at uh, one through four, what the author is showing us here is how the sacrifice of the law could not completely remove the guilt of sin, okay? It, it, It was impossible. The sacrifices of the law could never make perfect those who draw near. It just was not capable of doing that. Those sacrifices could not completely cleanse the worshipers and take away their consciousness of sin. As a matter of fact, it did the opposite. It showed them a reflection of their sin. It was always a constant reminder. And those sacrifices at a minimum provided a yearly reminder of their sins. Ultimately, 
didn't matter what sacrifices they made, it could not take away their sins. Because if that was the case, when they when they were cleansed, they wouldn't have had to, you know, uh, remember or recall those sins again. And the sacrifices would have ceased. In 5 through 10, the author shows us that Christ's obedience to God's will at the cross set aside the Old Testament sacrifices and provided for us perfect standing before God. Perfect standing before God. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could do that for us. And 11 through 18, the author is showing us once again through these chapters that Christ offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. That by offering his, but that by one offering, He has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. It was one offering. One offering. That was good enough. God promises to remember our sins and lawless deeds no more. As a result of Christ's sacrifice. Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering of sin. Come on now. The author illustrates the totality of our forgiveness by contrasting the unfinished, repetitive ministry of the Old Testament priests with all sufficient with the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In 15 through 18. The the author helps us to understand the Old Testament prophecy of the new covenant to show the total forgiveness that it promises means that the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient and final. And you will find that in Jeremiah 31, uh, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. But it's significant for us to know that the the sacrifices prescribed in the law could not completely remove guilt. If you look at chapter 10 verses 1 and 2, the author is making the argument that the law was only the shadow of good things to come and not the very form of those things. And for this reason, The repeated sacrifices could not make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had a consciousness of sins. When the word of God speaks to to make perfect, it refers to our standing in God's sight, in his sight. It includes total cleansing from sin so that we have a clean conscience, a clean conscience. That's what total cleansing means. If our conscience are aware of sins that have not been confessed and forgiven, we will hesitate to draw closer to God. 
We saw that with Adam and Eve. Because as soon as they sinned, they tried to hide from the presence of God. They didn't even want to face him because of what they had done. I remember when I was younger with my daddy. <laughs> my dad, you would you would think sometimes he had a nine to five because, you know, he wouldn't be at home during the day. And so if we got in trouble at school or something like that, my mom had this thing where she would send us in the basement to wait for my dad to come home so that he could discipline us. And it's it's funny now when I think about it because my uncle used to always tease us about having to go down in a dungeon. And so my mom would send us in the basement. We'd wait for my dad. And I'm telling you, I would try so hard to avoid that man because I knew that, you know, eventually I would get punished for what I had done. And even sometimes when I wasn't worried about getting a whooping, you know, it's just knowing that I disappointed him. I just didn't want to look him in the eye, you know, and that's similar to Adam and Eve. They, they hid from God. They hid from him because they had a guilty conscience. You know, (laughs) even dogs, you know, have a sense of guilt and they'll even avoid you. You know, if, 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 if they know that there's something that they were doing, but what the author was trying to help us understand what he was trying to get across to those early Christians is that baby, if it was the law, because see, again, he's trying to prevent them from going back to what's comfortable, what they know, what they're common with. And he's making the argument, look, if those sacrifices, if that was the way, (laughs) instead of Jesus, y'all would have been over this. Y'all wouldn't even have a consciousness of your sin if that worked. Then he goes on and in verse 3, and he talks about the Day of Atonement, and and he argues that that only provided a yearly reminder of sin, and that makes sense. That makes sense. That's, That's all you're doing. You're reminding me every year of the sin that that was committed. And the fact was that every year the people had to go through this ritual sacrifice again and again, only showing uh, that it had not completely removed their guilt. And then they put it off for another year. But just like taxes, (laughs) the day of, of atonement was coming And I can imagine, you know, those who were living during that time, it was difficult to have to go through that and knowing that all you're going to do is is just cycle it over, you know, in the next year. So in in, uh, verse four, he tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's just flat out. You still have to this day blood sacrifices, rit- rituals that we do as humans to try 
to wash away our sins. It will not happen. Animal blood has no permanent efficacy for human sin. It just will not cleanse you. That's why God designed a system for us through Christ to receive the total sacrifice, complete forgiveness that animal sacrifice could not do. Animal sacrifice was the forerunner for the provision of the sacrifice of the Son of God. It was the forerunner. It was to show us. It was the shadow of the things that were to come. And as an eternal God, his sacrifice was infinite and it has infinite value. As a man... His sacrifice atones for human sin in a way that the blood of animals could never do. It just, it it, it was not working. It was not working. So God sent his son. To make that sacrifice for us, to examine us, to, to, to help us to understand that all we have to do is confess our sins. That we may be found guiltless and without guilt and through grace we'll be able to hold our heads up high and, and to walk in the authority that God has given us. Ultimately, what the author wanted us to see and to understand is that through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we were completely and totally redeemed once and for all. Next, I want to journey into chapters 5 through 10. And so I'll return back and we'll talk about Christ's obedience to the will at the cross. Set aside the Old Testament sacrifices and provided perfect standing for us before God. So let's talk about it. I pray that y'all getting this that you're understanding that we are totally forgiven. Let's walk through the word. Amen.